Well, it's great to be together this morning. And uh, we're going to be picking up today uh, the next in our series. We're looking at uh, Luke chapter 7. And uh, as we go through Luke, we're not uh, covering everything in every chapter um, because we're doing a chapter a week. But today we're just picking up a few verses and going to pick up uh, some threads from it. We're going to run through the story together. And I I believe God's going to speak to us. And the, the title this morning is Faith That Amazes Jesus. And so as we come to God's Word... We're going to pray and we're going to ask God by His Spirit to come and speak to each one of us this morning. So Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your presence here amongst us as we've been worshipping. Thank you that you're the God who speaks to us and speaks peace into our circumstances, says that you're the God who's trustworthy and reliable and true. And we pray today that you would speak by your Spirit through your Word into our hearts that your word would dwell in us richly and that uh, through us you uh, might use us in the coming days. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we were hearing during the worship about trusting God. The reality is in our society, trust is uh, at an all-time low, isn't it? It's an all-time low in terms of, uh, we're really cynical, aren't we, about what people tell us, uh, promises that, we're, that are made to us, whether it be by politicians, whether it be in relationships, in business, uh, even in the world of sport. Experience tells us that when someone says uh, the manager has the board's full support, we all know what that means, don't we? Two weeks. We're concerned about fake news, misleading images that make us question the truth that we're being told. The existence of, uh, even the existence of prenuptial agreements before marriage is a sign of our increasingly litigious society. It tells a tale. Sadly, the church isn't immune to this disease. Trust built up over the years can be quickly lost in a moment. In a matter of months, the reputations of churches and church networks associated with Mars Hill and Hillsongs were irreparably damaged by unchristlike leadership. Behind all of this, this lack of trust that pervades our world, uh, the Bible says there is a devil, the Uh, the one who is opposed to the work of God. And right from the very beginning, he sought to undermine our trust in the one who created us, the God who loves us and is for us. And he tries uh, to continue to use all means at his disposal for us to just doubt and trust God. Did God really say? It's a lie that has pervaded our world. And this morning, the challenge is, have disappointments, unanswered prayers, the circumstances that we found ourselves in, the frailties that we all know run through each one of our hearts, have they caused our faith, our trust in God to dwindle? 
Do we now just pray safer prayers? Maybe we hardly pray at all. I started learning to trust God more when I left Swansea back in the late 80s. Life was a roller coaster of ups and downs personally and in the church that Annie and I joined. There were seasons of plenty and need. There were times when everything would go well and then sometimes when everything would seem to fall apart. It was like a roller coaster of, whoa! Ah! Life just felt like that. It was just going from ups and downs. We undertook what we felt were God-inspired initiatives and amazingly, when they came off, it was brilliant, but sometimes they didn't. Roller coasters can be uncomfortable. And as we get older, many of us start to avoid using them. We prefer to watch on, or we prefer to go on rides that are safer. And we can be little like that in the realm of faith. Things that we once prayed about, once that we reached out and believed God for, now we just watch others do that and we take a safer, easier route. The encounter that we're going to read about in Luke chapter 7, in the first 10 verses, encourages us to be people of faith. You see, I don't want to settle for hearing stories of faith. I still want to be in the midst of those stories myself. And part of the challenge that we have in this world and in Christian circles is that there's some unhelpful and unbiblical teaching on what it means to walk by faith. And so as we unpack Jesus' encounter uh, with a centurion, we're going to see faith that amazes Jesus. And we're going to read it verse by verse and we're going to unpack it together. This is what it says. So Luke chapter 7 verse 1. When he, that's Jesus, had concluded all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. This incident follows Jesus. He's been on the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard his famous Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is encouraging us to build our lives on the bedrock of all that God says. So God's trustworthy, you can trust him. We heard uh, last week from Tim that as we come to him and as we hear what he says, as we come to Jesus, put our trust in Jesus, hear what he says and then put into practice uh, what he tells us to do and how he tells us to live, he gives us life in all its fullness. And the Sermon on the Mount is a high bar. No wonder someone once said, Jesus' words are the best known, least understood, and the least obeyed. And as Jesus starts to outwork this teaching uh, that he's just been bringing, where does he go? 
Does he go to the metropolis, the center of Jewish life? Does he go to Jerusalem? Does he go to at the center of religious life, the temple? Does he go amongst the great and the good? No. He goes to Capernaum. Capernaum? Really? It's an ordinary fishing town on the banks, the northern banks of the Sea of Galilee. It's a town with, they reckon, about 1,500 ordinary people. Why does he go there? It's an unlikely place to start changing the world. And yet it's here that he chooses his first disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John, who are fishermen who live in Capernaum. Jesus comes to ordinary people. We heard that through what Kate brought this morning. Jesus comes amongst ordinary people like you and like me. He's here today, and he wants us to learn to trust him more. He wants to change us, and through us, he wants to change the lives of people around us and the circumstances where we find ourselves. Verse 2 says, A centurion's servant, who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. So we now come across the main character in the story other than Jesus. And it's a centurion. He's probably a Roman. He's responsible for a hundred soldiers in a legion. The job pays well, which we're going to see later, enables him to be generous with his money. And his servant is ill. In Matthew's gospel, the story uh, that Matthew recounts the story slightly different, tells the same story but from a slightly different angle. And he says that the servant is paralyzed and in terrible agony. Now, Capernaum was 700 feet below sea level, it's, pro- it's next to a big expanse of water. And writers, commentators suggest that Capernaum was prone to all sorts of diseases, fevers, stomach disorders, breathing diseases such as dysentery and typhus and TB. You know, we're prone to stuff depending on where we live. I used to work in Port Talbot many years ago. And uh, we used to call Port Talbot Smog City. Because there was Margam Abbey, the, the, the steelworks. There was Baglam Bay, which was BP chemicals. There was the British oxygen plant. And when you drove past Port Albert, there was just smog used to hang over the city. And it was, without doubt, it was not good for your health. And these people lived in a, a place that was... had. Impact them. We all live in places that impact us and we're affected by the world around us. And this centurion was no different to any of us. His servant is ill, but the centurion is a good boss. 
In days when servants were just a commodity, we're told that he loves his servant. We're told the, 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 the relationship is close. The Greek word is, that's used is saying it's like a, a parent and a child. This centurion really cares for his servant. There's no hope from the, for the, from the money, all the money and the wealth that the centurion has. There's no hope of a, a, a solution from the medical profession. And in the midst of this situation, in the midst of this ordinary town, Jesus brings hope to the hopeless. And I want to tell you this morning, if you are here this morning and you are feeling hopeless, Jesus is here bringing hope. He still brings hope to the hopeless. Maybe we've got loved ones who are going through difficult times, like the centurion, people that we love and care for who are going through tough times. Maybe we know people who are, we're close to who are really ill. And just like the centurion, this, this is here to encourage us to keep bringing them to Jesus because Jesus wants to use people like us. In verse 3 we read, when the centurion when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. What did the centurion hear about Jesus? I want to suggest to you that he already knew something of Jesus. Maybe he probably perhaps hadn't met him, but he knew about him because Capernaum was a small town, 1,500 people, and Jesus had previously been there. As you read through Luke's gospel, read chapter 4. He'd been in Capernaum, and people had been amazed at his authority and power as he had healed people. He'd set people free from oppression, demonic oppression. He'd healed the sick. And now he's in town again, and the centurion hears he's in town, and hope starts to rise in his heart. Jesus' presence stirs faith. Matthew tells us that the centurion came to Jesus, not a delegation of Jews. Is, is that discrepancy is important? Sometimes we read the Gospels and we read uh, uh, slightly different accounts and what's going on. Well, in this occasion, Matthew is, is telescoping, telescoping what's happened. He's focusing on the headline, not the detail. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Last Monday, I went to the garage to sort out Annie's car's MOT. So I went to the garage, I paid the bill, picked the car up, drove it home. But that isn't all that happened. It was Annie who set up the MOT. She was the one who dropped the car off at the night before. She was the one that's making phone calls. Was I, what I said true? Yeah, it was true. But it's just the headline of a particular moment. 
And what Matthew is doing is the same. And so when we read Luke's gospel, we can know that this is true, that the centurion sends a delegation of people to speak on his behalf to Jesus. He wanted Jesus' help, and he was prepared to do something about it. He wasn't passive. He didn't just sit back and just say, oh, c'est la vie. Whatever will be, will be. He did something. And we read a little later in verse 6 that the centurion calls Jesus Lord. It was a, a phrase that would have been used of, uh, 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 of important men. But it was also a word that was used of God. The centurion has a dawning awareness that this Jesus who stirs hope in his heart is more than just a man. And maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've heard about Jesus. You've heard something about him. And it's stirred, started to stir hope in your heart. Maybe there's hope for me. I want to tell you that Jesus is more than a good teacher. Jesus is more than a good man. Jesus is God's son. He is the son of God. He was with the Father in heaven and the Father sends him to a world that needs rescuing. People that need rescuing. People that need help. People that need hope. And so Jesus comes and breaks into our world and brings hope. Jesus has authority and power from God. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We may not have seen him, but we believe in him. Our hope is in him. Verse 4, when they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he's worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. The Jews plead that this centurion is worthy of Jesus' help, worthy of Jesus' intervention, worthy of Jesus healing his servant. I mean, he must have been an impressive character. For Jews to beg Jesus to heal a Roman centurion's servant. We're told that he'd built a synagogue for the people to worship. This centurion, he has a tender heart towards God. He's open-hearted towards God. And Jesus responds and goes with this delegation. But before he gets to the house, the centurion sends a message. Lord, don't trouble yourself. You don't need to come to the house. What on earth is going on? He's surely got the answer to his prayers. Jesus reveals our need of grace 
As we draw near, as Jesus draws near to us, we realize our need of grace. Here we see the centurion's humility. He knows he isn't worthy to come before Jesus, even though the delegation of Jews thought he was worthy. He didn't believe his own press or what others said about him. He, as Jesus draws near, he becomes aware of his own unworthiness, his own sin, the Bible says, his own rebellion, his living life without reference to God. He knows as Jesus draws near, he starts to feel this sense of unworthiness. We read earlier in Luke's gospel that Jesus responds similarly when he is at Capernaum and he's, he's cleaning his fishing nets in Luke chapter 5. And as he's cleaning his fishing nets, Jesus is talk, teaching the crowd from the shoreline. And the crowd is, there's so many people gathering that uh, Jesus says to Peter, can I borrow your boat? And he goes out onto the boat, into the lake, and he preaches to the, the crowd. Peter's just listening on as he's washing his nets, his fishing nets. They've been out fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. And then as he finishes, Jesus says to Peter, put the boat out into deep water and throw the nets out again. Peter's like, I've been fishing all night. Hey, I know. I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing. You may be a great preacher, but I'm a fisherman. I know all about fishing. But because it's Jesus, he throws the nets out. Then caught anything all night. Suddenly there is a massive catch of fish. And in the moment, Peter, as Jesus, he's, he's thought Jesus, he's just a good teacher. He's a great teacher. That teacher was amazing. Suddenly he realizes that he is in the presence of God. He's on holy ground. And Peter says, Lord, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. As Jesus, as we start to, Jesus starts to come near to us, and our awareness of Jesus grows, what happens in our hearts is that we become increasingly aware of our own unworthiness. And that's what was happening with this centurion. It's what happens throughout the Bible as men and women are encounter a holy God. We read about it in Moses in Exodus. We read about it about Isaiah as he has a revelation of God in Isaiah chapter 6. They become aware of their own godlessness and their need of a savior, their need of rescuing. Humility is a mark of God's kingdom. And we live in an arrogant world where, where we ignore God, the God who created us and loves us. In our me-centric culture, it's all about me and what I think and what I can do. Humility is a godly quality. Jesus modeled it, we're told. He didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped as he became a man and served us to rescue us. Jesus himself said, only the humble inherit God's promises. 
And James chapter 4 verse 10 says that it's only as we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand does God lift us up in due season. In these days, the challenge is sometimes we come to God, we think God owes us a favor as we pray. Well, I've lived a good life. I've done this. I've been good. As we come near to him, we realize our own unworthiness. You see, the irony is the first delegation begged Jesus to heal based on the centurion's worthiness. And it's the centurion that recognizes he's not worthy. He deserves nothing from Jesus. The Jesus who is drawing near is greater and far greater than anyone has clocked. What about us? Do we come before God as we pray with a sense of entitlement? Do we think we deserve to, for Jesus to hear our cries for help, for healing, for breakthrough? What's our response when God doesn't seem to do what we expect or want or ask for? Are we like Jonah in the story of Jonah who just gets grumpy at God because he doesn't do what he wants him to do? Do we get bitter? Do we get disillusioned? Do we think, well, it's no point praying. There's no point following God. What's it all worth? He doesn't do what I want. You see, only as we understand how great God is and how wonderful he is and how amazing Jesus is, that we start to understand the grace of God. We deserve nothing from God. Everything we receive from him is by grace, as Kate was telling us earlier. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Not by works that anyone should boast, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. So, at the end of verse 7, it says this. The centurion says to Jesus, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under command, under my command. I say to this one, go and he goes, and another come and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This centurion understands authority. He says to Jesus, Jesus, you just need to say the word, my servant will be healed. His experiences in the army, he knows that in a place, position of authority, if the boss says, do it, it gets done. If the boss says, jump, how high? If the boss says, run, how fast? The centurion understood authority. And he'd seen and heard about evidence of Jesus' authority. Jesus speaking to evil spirits and saying, go, and they went. Speaking to uh, those who were paralyzed, get up, take up your mat and walk. And they did. Jesus spoke the word and it happened. The centurion had heard about that. This Jesus is the same Jesus that draws near to us. He's the one that spoke the worlds into being. He was there at the beginning. When Jesus speaks, it's the word of God speaking. When Jesus says, speaks into a situation, 
The situation changes because he is God. He is the God-man, both God and man. Do we believe that? Do we believe who Jesus is and that his word is all-powerful? If we do, we will take the promise in Hebrews 4 verse 16 and we will apply it to our lives every day. We will approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I feel stirred in these days. God is stirring us and challenging us to pray bigger and bolder prayers. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. I'm married to Annie. Those of you who know her well know she talks in superlatives. She uses the word amazing a lot. And when amazing isn't enough, she says it's amazingly amazing. <laughs> we read here, I want you to get this, I want you to try and get this. We read of Jesus, the Son of God, who has always been and always existed with the Father in perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This Jesus who was there at the beginning of the creation of the world, who was, who was the spoken word, who spoke the universe into being. This Jesus who wasn't surprised at the beauty of the world because he was there when it was made. This Jesus who was never taken up with human creations and buildings and his disciples showed say look at those amazing buildings in Jerusalem the temple look at it it was, took years to build and Jesus is like yeah well it'll go soon it'll disappear soon this Jesus is amazed he's amazed at this centurion's faith let that sink in Jesus is amazed at his faith in the gospels that word is used around 25 times and it describes the same word is used to describe people's responses when they see Jesus at work the disciples the crowds those in authority religious rulers people are amazed by what people uh, what Jesus does including when he breaks social taboos, like uh, he speaks to a Samaritan woman at a well. They're amazed at what he says and how he says it. They're even amazed at the things that he doesn't say. And yet we're told Jesus is twice amazed by faith, by people's faith. The first is in an unexpected place, in this place, with a Roman centurion, not a Jew, not one of his disciples. The place he wouldn't expect to see faith. The other place that he talks about people's faith is in his hometown. Among people who knew him, the people he 
would perhaps naturally have expected to be people who trusted him. But he is amazed by their lack of faith. It's a challenge to us. Does Jesus find faith in the place that he would expect to find it? Or is he amazed at lack of faith? See, Jesus did say the word, and the servant was healed. And it leaves us with some big questions as we come to a close. Do we just need to trust Jesus more for healing or breakthrough? Jesus has all authority. So is it about us having more faith? There are some who teach that's the case. And some of what they say has been damaging. Many have believed their prayers weren't answered because of their lack of faith. But also on occasions, the, the gospel, gospels challenge it, in the gospels, Jesus challenges followers, his followers about their little faith. So there, there can be moments where we, Jesus is stirring us to believe him more, to trust him more. So there, there is an issue here that we need to grapple with. He also commends people for their great faith. What are we to make of that? Most commentators, because I've been reading around it, most commentators on this passage, they dodge the question. You see, I think this passage is teaching us that Jesus wants us to learn to grow in trusting him. The amazing faith of the centurion is there to stir us to believe God. But hear this. There is only one recorded occasion like this. And so this passage should never be used as a rod to beat ourselves up with. I believe what God wants us to hear this morning is that there, we need a godly desire for more. More of his presence, more of his power amongst us, more that his kingdom might come in greater measure amongst us but a humble reliance on God who knows everyone and every situation and knows the right thing to do in each and every one of them. It's easy sometimes to think, well, was it all worth it? I had an Instagram photo sent to me recently of a building and uh, the person sent the message said, Steve, do you remember us going to this place, this hotel? And the hotel was like, it was palatial. And I'm, I'm trying to work out uh, where it was and when it was. And I, I, I worked out in the end that it was a hotel in Korcha in uh, Albania. And Albania is technically, it's a Muslim country. And I'd been there uh, with someone I worked with. Uh, it was after the Kosovan War, when loads of Kosovan refugees had, been, had gone into Albania. And... Uh, uh, I was introducing the guy I worked with to someone I knew who had a small group of believers in culture. And we went and we stayed. It was winter. We stayed in this hotel. There was all the corridors. There were no windows in the corridors. It was absolutely freezing. All I remember is shivering. That's all I remember about the trip, really. And, and when I got home, I, I would have thought, I honestly thought, was that, was that really worth it? Was that worth going to Albania for? 
And as I was talking, uh, I met the guy who sent, sent the message, and he'd been back there recently, and he'd been back and been appointing elders in the church in Courture. There's now a church of 70 or 80 Albanian believers in Courture. It's part of a family of churches, five churches. And the guy that we'd, one of the guys we'd met when we were there is now overseeing those five churches. And the church leaders were coming and they were saying to this friend of mine, thank you so much that you came and invested time in us. Sometimes I, I, it's easy to look and think, well, what's the point? What was the point of us doing that? Who knows what God is doing behind the scenes? Who knows what God is doing in the hearts and minds of men and women? Who knows what God is doing through you in your workplace? Who knows what God is doing through you in your community? God wants us to be people who trust him. There's an encouragement for us here to recognize the power available in Christ for godly people to intercede for situations we care about, for people we care about. J.C. Ryle, the commentator of many years ago, says of this incident, a greater miracle of healing than this is nowhere recorded in the Gospels. Without even seeing the sufferer, without a touch of hand or look of eye, the, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. He speaks and the sick man is cured. He commands and the disease departs. We see here the finger of God. Can I ask the band to come and join me? Do you want to see the finger of God more at work in your situations and circumstances? Do you believe that God still wants to work in your world, the place where you work, your family, your situations, your circumstances? Do you believe a word from God can change everything? God wants us to be those who gladly, willingly come to a throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. He wants us to be people who cry out for breakthrough, not holding him over a barrel that he's got to do what we think he ought to do because actually God is God and he's always working out his good, perfect and pleasing will in your life, in people around you and so our response is to be people who are like the centurion we believe you, King Jesus you are the saviour of the world why don't we stand?